Covert Action. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine. We've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm Rachel Hu. And I'm Chris Garaffa, and we're happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. Before we get into our show today, we want to take a moment to mark the passing of whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg on Friday, June 16th at the age of 92. Dan Ellsberg was a regular guest on Covert Action's informational forums, and he was most famous, of course, for leaking what became known as the Pentagon Papers, 47 volumes exposing the gruesome details of the genocidal U.S. war in Vietnam and beyond. Faced with charges under the Espionage Act, he was willing to go to prison, but he was not convicted, as the criminal Nixon administration sent the plumbers against him, breaking into his psychiatrist's office and even offering the judge in his case a seat on the federal bench in return for a conviction. Ellsberg really was a legend. I mean, he continued his activism well after the Vietnam War. And in 1988, along with Covert Action's co-founder, Philip Agee, as well as former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, author Studs Terkel, and others, he started the Association for Responsible Dissent to expose clandestine activity. The support team for whistleblower Daniel Hale tweeted that Ellsberg had been on the weekly support calls for Hale, providing the kind of support only another whistleblower can. And just a few months ago, he told the world that in 2010, he received a copy of the material they received from Chelsea Manning as a backup. And in 2021, he provided New York Times reporter Charlie Savage with top secret documents about U.S. plans for a first use nuclear strike on China in 1958. And as Savage quotes him, Ellsberg said, quote, I will, if indicted, be asserting my belief that what I am doing, like what I've done in the past, is not criminal. He selflessly put himself at great risk for another arrest and trial, as just having the material could be a persecutable offense under the Espionage Act alone. Henry Kissinger called him, quote, the most dangerous man in America. And that should be a sign that Daniel Ellsberg did the right thing, that we should all work to uphold his legacy and to continue the struggle against imperialism, surveillance and injustice everywhere. Rest in power, Daniel Ellsberg. Rachel, you know, when I I heard the news, we we knew that, unfortunately, very sadly, this was coming. He passed of pancreatic cancer. And that's a very quick illness uh, when you, you know, get your diagnosis. And he. Really, up until the last day, Dan Ellsberg was going with interviews and and doing media and writing. And I I think we can't understate what he gave the world, not just in the Pentagon Papers, but continuing. I mean, being arrested, you know, 85 something times at at protests against wars and uh, against imperialism and the covert action of the U.S. government. You know, I, I think we again, just can't understate what we've lost in in Dan Ellsberg. Certainly. I mean, he was on every single level. I mean, somebody who was uh, just just this kind of revolutionary heart. Like, I don't know how else to describe that. I mean, it's not an easy task to look into the the eyes of the, the, like, just the eyes of the beast and say, you know, the truth is what matters. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that the world gets to see the truth. I mean, he's changed the course of the Vietnam War. I mean, there's no way at all in terms of the opposition to the Vietnam War. The kind of information that he put out is the kind of information that radically transformed the way that millions of people in the United States and even more tens and tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world thought as well about the United States. And that contribution alone is just, my God, like, how do you even, you know, how do you even quantify that? But it's just, it's, it is, to me, you know, losing Ellsberg 
is he was 92 and I'm happy that he got to live a full life. I think there is a beauty in that, that he got to go out on his own terms on a lot of ways. I mean, he wasn't in a jail cell and the U.S. government didn't get him, couldn't get him. He beat those bogus charges and he still stood up and, and fought for what he believed in and fought for all of us, really. I mean, he's, when we talk about American heroes, he's a true American hero. When <laughs> the U.S. likes to talk about American heroes, I mean, they call Kissinger an American hero. And my God, it's just, just completely the opposite in every way, shape and form. But, but Ellsberg really did this country, the people of this country, country a a great service and so he's definitely going to be missed yeah he did the world a service i think we can say he certainly did the world a service you know having that kind of access and you know painstakingly 47 volumes i mean that's thousands and thousands of pages and you know it wasn't like he had a floppy drive or a zip drive he could you know a thumb drive or whatever he could just put everything on he sat there on the floor and he copied them page by page by page, and made sure that the world was able to see them. And he tried to go the, quote, responsible way first. And I think that's a part that is missed in his story, and also the story of many, many other whistleblowers, right? Is that you try to go to various agencies within the government and say, hey, I learned about this wrongdoing, and I think that, you know, something should be done about it. And the powers that be just shut you down, they ignore you, you get punished even for for doing it. Um, You know, he tried to go through the, quote, proper channels. And when that didn't work, he said, you know, I'm going to risk my future, my life and get these to the people so that they can see the horrific crimes and the genocidal reasoning behind the war in Vietnam. And that can't be understated. And neither can just the work that he did, you know, in, in the last few decades. I mean, supporting Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower. So significant, you know, supporting Chelsea Manning, supporting Julian Assange, uh, just being that presence, that voice, that familiar name and face that people can look to and say, well, you know what, if Dan Ellsberg is supporting this person, maybe I should, too, because we know what a good thing Dan Ellsberg did. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was a North Star in terms of justice and righteousness. I mean, there's really nothing else you can say about that in terms of the whistleblower community. And I think there's so few people that that know that experience. I, I really think that it's a beautiful thing that he was able to support Daniel Hale, even as he's getting older, and even as he's battling cancer, he's still willing to be there because it's such a unique experience that people have to go through that are that are willing to speak out. And who else to know better than than somebody who's really been through it. And one of the things I wanted to say, too, just about just the the way that the government treated Ellsberg, I think that that's just an important kind of piece of his story. I mean, they raided his psychiatrist's office, which is crazy to think about the complete violation of his privacy on every single level, the wiretapping, I mean, the kind of surveillance that they ran on him and to try to pressure him to cave, and he just didn't. And I think there's something very beautiful in that. And also the the reason why the charges against him were dropped were because of the government, the complete and utter kind of chaotic government dis- misconduct that was taken up here. But it goes to show that the, the empire won't stop. They will not stop uh, if they see, if they think that you're a threat. And it's not a surprising, it's not surprising that he was called one of the most dangerous men, <laughs> really, because he was. And what's dangerous about him is his, his, his righteousness and willingness to tell the truth. And I think that that's a, a thing that we can all take away in remembering Ellsberg and in the work that we do here at CAM and the work that we do and all of our organizing work to, to take that spirit and that bravery and continue on. Because 
a revolutionary can die, but the revolution continues. And I think that, you know, being 92, he got he got to see a lot of life. And, and it's our job as young people to carry on his legacy and carry on all that he fought for. You're absolutely right, Rachel. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to to talk about him here. I'm glad that we at Covert Action were able to support him when we were able to and that he was able to support us when he could. We're going to do everything we can and we encourage our listeners to do everything that they can to uphold your legacy and to and to continue in the struggle. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken ended his recent trip to China with a 35-minute meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on June 19th. Blinken had also met with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang and the top diplomat Wang Yi over the weekend. The trip comes just a few weeks after the U.S. military tried to stoke the flames of war against China once again by misrepresenting situations in which U.S. and Canadian warships came into close contact with Chinese military ships in the Taiwan Strait. And the meetings had already originally been scheduled for February, but were delayed after the Pentagon and the U.S. media claimed that Chinese weather balloons had been spying on the U.S. The State Department put out a statement saying that Blinken, quote, underscored the importance of responsibly managing the competition between the United States and the PRC through open channels of communication. But the actions of the U.S. government towards China do not reflect any kind of desire for fraternal relations or cautious diplomacy. To talk more about recent developments, we're joined by Mika Nando-Erskog, the researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and one of the hosts of The Crane, an Africa-China podcast by the Dongsheng Collective. Welcome back to the show, Mika. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. So I just I think we want to start out just by looking at some of the media coverage of this trip of the surprise meeting as it's been presented by Blinken and Xi Jinping, you know, 35 minutes at the end of the trip. You know, certainly that's something that had to have been planned. And in fact, the original trip in February did have planned meetings on the schedule. Uh, between the two, but it was not officially on the schedule for this. But, you know, the U.S. media is saying, for example, the Washington Post, Blinken, once seen as a headache, could be a remedy uh, for tensions between the U.S. and China. But to me, that seems completely wrong, because in fact, it's Blinken as a representative of the U.S. establishment that is actually pushing towards more war and conflict with China. How are you seeing the results of, of these meetings? Well, I think first off is that um, much as you've pointed out, a lot of people, the kind of China experts, etc., all the geopolitical commentary has been around. At minimum, there's an opening up of communication. So everyone is welcoming this idea that, you know, we're opening up communication, we're possibly reducing or diffusing tensions. I think in any kind of geopolitical circumstance where there's such uh, I just heightened tensions, where we are seeing more and more the kind of encirclement through militarization coming from the U.S. We're seeing more and more historically this kind of global NATO, as it's being called, which, you know, they're going to meet in July and are going to do all these silly things to try to show that NATO was actually a so-called defensive operation through things like, I, I think one of the things on the agenda is gender mainstreaming. How can we get more women in the top levels of NATO, et cetera? But I think uh, that it, from a structural point of view, I don't think we're going to expect anything really different in terms of the U.S.'s posture. 
we've seen in Africa since last year when we had this new policy paper on uh, when Blinken visited Naledi Pandor, the foreign minister in South Africa, to launch the new strategy paper towards sub-Saharan Africa, is there's, on the surface, there's a lot of nice words about we don't want conflict, we don't want Africa to choose. But when you look through the documents, it's clear that the U.S. is basically scrambling to reassert itself politically and economically. Um, so I think that this meeting itself is kind of very surface level. I think people want to be optimistic and say that things will de-escalate, but unless we see concrete shifts such as a complete de-escalation of the military encirclement, such as a complete, you know, I would say the only decoupling that really needs to happen is the U.S. backing of Taiwan separatism, um, which is a linchpin in the issue as well as questions on economic sanctions, the tar- reducing tariffs. I think simple things could be done in good faith, in quotes, such as removing the uh, the equivalent of the defense secretary in China. He, You saw in the Shangri-La talks, they were unable to kind of meet the two, the U.S. and the Chinese defense secretaries because the Chinese defense secretary is on the sanctions list and he's basically been blacklisted. So just removing his name from blacklisting could kind of show good faith. But structurally, we know how the U.S. operates. We know that even though it says it's not trying to pose, and that's what Blinken said, it's not trying to thwart uh, China's economic rise or economic activities. We've seen through the various economic warfare strategies, as well as the military strategies, that they're very much keen to obstruct China's rise and its rising influence in the rest of the world and the different alternatives it opens up for the rest of the global south. And I will say what was kind of funny, just on a personal note, was to see some of the reactions from Chinese citizens online. For example, many were joking about the fact that Blinken came on Father's Day. So he he came to see the father, President Xi, Um, which it, it seems funny, but I think it's actually quite indicative of an important moment we're in and an important material difference we have right now is that the Chinese people are confident Never in their history have ordinary citizens felt so patriotic and confident in the fact that they have a government that they trust, an economy that has, you know, lifted 800 million people out of extreme poverty in the last few decades. And so I think it's also interesting and I'm hoping to see more of these reactions from also ordinary citizens. Certainly, Mika. I mean, I definitely feel that the the memes have been... um... (laughs) Something to really take in on the Chinese internet. And I think you're very right about what it indicates. And I I think if anything to this meeting, even though it's being reported uh, across the media as if this is some major, just this major turning point, which is the way I've been reading some of these headlines. It's like, we're going to stabilize our relationship with China. I I think you bring up such an important point that what, what exactly is the U.S. going to do to make that happen? I mean, everything that Tony Blinken has said up to this point and even moving forward, continuing It's just this idea that there's an even a recognition of Taiwan is inherently in and of itself a contradiction to the way the U.S. has been handling China. And also it's the number one issue. The issue of Taiwan is really the number one issue uh, that that I think that the U.S. is obviously not interested in in budging on, but it's the foundation of U.S.-China relations forever. I mean, like this has just been the case ever since the Shanghai communique in in 1972. I mean, this has been such a foundational piece of U.S.-China relations. And to see 
see that deviation in the last few years. And this whole situation, of course, with chip manufacturing in Taiwan, the U.S. is not going to ramp down its its competition, its desire for competition. It's not going to change any of its strategic orientation towards this particular issue. So to me, it's it, it's, a, it's just all this fluff, like you're saying. It's fluff. It's nonsense. It's kind of just it's good feelings on the surface. But the tensions are going to remain if the U.S. is not actually looking to engage in, in returning to, frankly, returning to the actual one China policy, which they have so clearly deviated from. So, Mika, I'd love for you to speak a bit more on the issue of Taiwan and kind of the how we kind of got here and a, a bit too, if you could speak to just kind of the, the issue specifically of the microchips, because I know Dongshan has done some really great work on this and I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, and actually, uh, not only Dongsheng, but um, I'm also part of a committee called No Cold War, and we provide these briefings every few months on specific issues. And one of them is on the chip making industry. And I think what people don't really understand is the centrality of, of course, you know, chips are the future. Chips are in every electronic device we have from our cell phones to, you know, aerospace to our computers, et cetera, our cars. And in April, I think it was in the first week of April, uh, Michael McCall, who's he's the chairperson of the Foreign Affairs Committee, he was asked on, I can't remember which uh, US media house it was, but he was asked, basically, the, the, the host said, why are Americans expected to spill their blood for Taiwan? Like, why are we expected to go there? And his response was, well, the Taiwan... Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, they manufactured like 95% of chips. Like the, the large majority of manufacturing happens in Taiwan. And so if you want to understand the Taiwan issue a little bit better, of course, it's not the entirety of the conversation, but the fact that the major producer of the kind of engine of all our technological devices is sitting so close is part of China's is basically um, I think a, a red line issue for the U S and how it sees its ability to maintain economic hegemony globally. And I mean, the, the chip manufacturing industry and semiconductors in general have been a centerpiece of war and hegemony for a long time. I mean, when Silicon Valley was created, I think, more than 90% of the chips that were they were selling were going to the Pentagon. It was all going to, you know, the military war machine. And this was in the 1950s or, or so, like basically aiding the Cold War. So semiconductor industry has always been a centerpiece to the war machinery and the ability to discipline the rest of the world. And of course, China is by no means um, as far ahead, but in 1990, they're, they're lagging behind in terms of the, the, the advanced chip manufacturing. Right now, they make between the 7 nanometer and 40 nanometer, and I think the more, most advanced is around 3 nanometers, and they're not yet able to produce at that scale. But from 1992, I think 2020, 2021, um, they went from zero to having, I think it's, I might be mistaken, but around like 18% of the global share. But they still are behind on the fact that the US largely, even though the foundry were like with the production of semiconductors is happening in um, Taiwan, the US still has a monopoly on fabrication and chip design. And so as they're seeing China increase their capacity for some elements of the fabrication and chip design, there is a serious concern that China will, you know, 
surpassed them. And there, China has been surpassing them in trade relationships with Africa. Africa, the biggest trade partner is China. Even the European Union, Europe right now, they export most from China, but they, the third import destination is China. So we're seeing like China being really integrated into a lot of the different economies, including the US's economy. I mean, trade has increased year on year. It hasn't slowed down despite um, the sanctions and the various economic tactics to, 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 to kind of halt its progression. But going back to Taiwan, I think importantly again is just that to control the semiconductor industry would allow for essentially the control of the future of our technologies and our, our, our societies. So I think this is also a part of that conversation and why the U.S. has been relatively relentless um, in doing so. But what I am interested in is to see, because I saw that the uh, one of the executives of Raytheon, I think he made a statement quite recently, it was featured in Financial Times, basically saying we can't decouple from China, like in a panic, we can't decouple from China because a lot of the raw inputs, I think raw earth materials, I think, again, in the 90 percentile is um, produced, not, not necessarily the extraction, but the production, the manufacturing process happens in China. So a lot of the U.S. companies are, you know, in a little bit of a panic mode, as well as European companies. I think Volkswagen right now is freaking out about some of the the, the Chip Act specificities, the new 2022 Chip Act and how if they sanction China, what that's going to do for their business. And as you've seen, uh, even though Bill Gates is not technically still the head of uh, Microsoft anymore, but Bill Gates, your, your buddy Elon Musk, et cetera, have all been courting uh, China right now. So I'm also interested to see how the relationship between U.S. corporate you know, capital and how they're going to basically push back against the government, which is a contradiction for many of us who we'd like to see Elon Musk burnt to the ground um, along with the rest of them. But it's also, uh, I think, creating a certain leeway for China to maneuver around how the U.S. government is trying to to rein them in. Mm, it's an interesting contradiction to bring up, Mika, especially it's the ruling class. I mean, the ruling class has different interests within themselves. And so to see that kind of stark, the stark anti-China, China perspective in the ruling class come in opposition with those who might be a little bit more interested in the green above all else. It's going to be, it's going to be something. It's going to be something to see. I mean, I want to say this and Chris, I want you to get in here too. I mean, one of the things I think is so pivotal in understanding the situation when it comes to semiconductors and these chips is that this, this, the idea that the United States wants to encircle China and essentially this whole idea of containment. It hinges also on the containment of the U.S. tech war on China. And so this is why these chips are, that's another element of why these chips are so important. On every single front, the U.S. is doing everything that it can to contain China as, of course, they've been really like looking at it and functioning. And that's how it's been talked about. I mean, the idea of making sure that China cannot grow on its own, cannot grow outside of its own borders. And even within that, just doing everything everything to strangle its potential for production. This is a major part of the U.S. Cold War efforts against China. So if that's not changing, then I don't know what Blinken, I really don't know what Blinken's talking about, you know? One tiny quote that you just reminded me of is there was a U.S. think tank called the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, Washington-based, that I think was last year characterized basically the Biden administration's chip war. I think the exact words was that the US policy is actively strangling large segments of the Chinese technology industry, strangling with an intent to kill. 
is is their wording, not not China's wording, not Africa's wording, but a Washington based, you know, think tank. That's exactly what it is. But I'm glad you brought up that contradiction. Right. Because like and often and we need to know this as progressives and revolutionaries that, you know, the revolutionary situations happen when, you know, primarily there are contradictions in the ruling class. Like and we have to be able to take advantage of those because like I'm not coming down on the side of Bill Gates or Elon Musk. But, you know, we should be able to, like, analyze and understand why there is this contradiction. And it's so interesting because it was just announced a couple weeks ago, just on the question of chips, that a, uh, a Swiss company, ST Microelectronics, is partnering with Sanyan Optoelectronics. They're going to build a $3.2 billion plant in Chongqing. Um, and that's much more significant than the $2 billion plant that Elon Musk built, just talking about Elon Musk. Uh, so he's getting outdone there, and I'm sure he's not happy about that. <laughs> but it's a partnership between a Swiss company and a Chinese company. Um, and of course, the U.S. is not happy about any of this, but they have to realize that, you know, every time the U.S. talks about the rules-based international order that they're so, you know, supposedly trying to, to enforce, it's just the U.S.-based international order. And they're expecting Europe and the rest of the world to come along, whether they have to, you know, come along willingly or they have to drag them kicking and screaming. It's this imperial hegemony that lets the U.S. try to make these moves, but they're really being shown because they've taken it so far to me from what I see with China that much of the world is starting to say no. And it also relates back to what you were saying earlier from me, too, about how the Chinese people are actually like proud of their country. Like, you don't have people in the U.S. who are like super proud of anything that, you know, forget Republican, Democrat, but like what is, you know, the. U.S., you know, so low in, in test scores, high in COVID deaths, high in just, you know, people going bankrupt from medical care, things that are being addressed or just don't happen or are unthinkable in China, uh, in, you know, in large parts. And then I think we, we see, too, the way that the imperial media is looking at trying to blame everything China is doing internationally or pin everything China is doing internationally as a threat to the U.S. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal recently reported about China supposedly building a spy station in Cuba. Uh, even the Pentagon was like, that's not something we're concerned about. Like, no, what are you like? That's not a thing we've been watching. What do you where did you come from? But again, now, uh, Wall Street Journal just today, June 20th, Beijing plans a new training facility in Cuba, raising prospect of Chinese troops on America's doorstep. Well, first of all, the U.S. has troops in Cuba. The U.S. is occupying Guantanamo Bay. So for the Wall Street Journal to put this out, and of course they are doing this not as an intellectual exercise, but they're doing this at the behest of U.S. capital, uh, really is just, isn't it just pushing this anti-China fever even further? There's this threat of Chinese troops 90 miles off the coast of Florida? 100%. And... I think the thing that's kind of, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily depressing, but just like bizarre is that this happens routinely, routinely just before some kind of important meeting is happening with the presence of China in the last, at least in the last six, seven, eight years, we routinely see some kind of false story getting circulated, drums being beaten about some form of undermining the sovereignty of another country coming from China when it's there's no facts actually behind it. So, for example, when all this was happening with Cuba, which just seems ridiculous, I was reminded of 
Just before the Forum on China-Africa cooperation met in Dakar in Senegal in 2019, I think it was, I was, I was present. Just a month before that, we were getting all these reports about the Ugandan airport is going to be seized by the Chinese government for um, the Ugandan government failing to repay some of the, the loan repayments. And it was a com- it was a completely false story, and when you kind of try to t- follow the money, uh, what you find is that it often leads to um, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy. It always somehow ends up there in Zimbabwe again, right about the time when certain deals were supposed to be made between the Chinese and the Zimbabwean governments. I think this was four or five years ago. There was a story about. A lot of stories coming up about um, Chinese companies' malpractices. And when a Zimbabwean journalist followed the money, it turns out that there was a U.S. embassy workshop that was funding a group of so-called, you know, democratic voices for truth. And this group has been largely funded by NED, and they were being trained in this workshop to target Chinese companies, to actively target and criticize Chinese companies, according to this independent Zimbabwean journalist. So I feel this is a routinely a way of, you know, creating fear, creating distraction, polarizing people in a moment that actually really demands us to, 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 to make very, you know, difficult uh, but important decisions to try to cooperate because the world is burning, people are starving, and the fact that they want to focus this just seems like much like the balloon story that stopped Blinken from visiting initially. It seems like a way of the U.S. hijacking the narrative and trying to reset the agenda so that we don't focus on the important issues and we can just bash China and other and other people who are fighting for a totally different project. Certainly. I mean, I even feel like the media is like pushing up against itself with this story because it's like, how can you on one hand report that tensions are being brought down and now you're still going to point the finger and make a completely false, completely false claim? I mean, on every single level, this is a false claim. I mean, the Cuban, the Cuba's deputy foreign minister actually denied explicitly this report, that there was this Chinese spy base operating on the islands. And we actually had a reporter at Breakthrough News, one of our correspondents in Cuba, um, Luis de Jesus, who went to the supposed alleged base and spoke to people in the neighborhood about what they think was going on in there. I mean, if you were bringing in thousands of Chinese people, I I think people would like notice that if there was a major ongoing effort of the base. And all the people he spoke with were like, oh, you know, I I once knew a Chinese family like... (laughs) years ago that lived in this neighborhood that's the only Chinese people I've seen here and also like I really don't this is not I don't know what you're talking about like genuine confusion from people so to me it's also like wow not even a single journalist at the Wall Street Journal they have endless resources and I mean endless resources to do some basic level of fact-checking basic level of verification around the information that they're putting out there. And they didn't have anybody, I guess, just at all do any basic level of of look into, is this a credible idea? Is this a credible thought? And I, I think it's important to, to, to really bring that forward, just because the Wall Street Journal is not interested <laughs> in telling the truth. They're not interested in, in doing anything other than stoke these flames further. Um, and so to me, it just, it kind of becomes very clear how the media plays 
plays into the hand of whatever it is the Pentagon wants. And I think that is what the Pentagon still wants. No matter what is being said on the surface, what is still happening is the containment, the whole policy of containment uh, of China, which there's so many layers to that. And Mika, I'd love to talk about a a little bit more of this, kind of the the military containment of China and the ways in which the U.S. is really encircling the, the country. Because I think people don't always get a sense of the scale of the way the U.S. is operating. Yes, there's a trade war. Yes, there's a technology war and there's a tech, there's an encirclement of the technology sector and a desire to completely contain that as well. But there's also military containment. I mean, there's 313 bases in East Asia alone, all of which, I mean, we're talking South Korea, Japan. I mean, the U.S. is doing everything it can to, to really militarily encroach on China as well. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on this as this as it's been developing in the past year and the, the kind of strategy that the U.S. is following here, because it's very they're playing with fire. It's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And I mean, especially as we're coming close to the NATO summit, which we have to follow closely and what the what are they saying? We have to read between the lines versus what they say on the surface and what's actually happening below. But as you said, yes, over 300 U.S. foreign bases are in Asia. Then we have uh, I think it's over 200 bases and 60,000 troops in Europe. So now we have the Europe, you know, whatever, I don't know the language, not frontal, uh, rear guard or rear assault. And then we have, you know, at least 29 foreign bases in Africa, where which have, and the military, the US foreign military through Africa, Africa Command, um, which was a product of NATO. It was, it was NATO's commander Jones, uh, Jones Jr. I forget his first name. He proposed creating uh, the Africa Command, which would basically be a form of, they, you know, they talk about cooperation, but essentially it was also trying to create another buffer zone. So we have in Asia, we have in Europe, we have in Africa and largely across the strip of the Sahel in West Africa, which you can almost, if you see on, on a map, it looks like, you know, a buffer zone, not only against China and or the East um, and against West Asia, as, as some people know it as the Middle East, um, but also as a buffer for its European allies. And I think that's the part that also has been quite strange right now in relation to the military encirclement is Europe is clearly being subordinated, is acting as almost a vassal of the U.S. foreign policy. And I think it's been quite challenging, actually, to understand what's going on in Europe. Sorry, I'm I'm digressing a little bit. I'll come back to the military encirclement. But after, you know, during the G7 meeting, Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, he, he basically, during the opening statements, is talking about China as a co- an economic coercive force, and they're characterizing them economic coercive. But then when they come out with the statement afterwards, it's a lot more hush-hush, clearly showing that there's a little bit of, you know, divergence and internal grappling that's going on with with uh, the European elites, with the, of course, your Australia's and Canada's are basically the US to me. But, um, and we've seen Macron flip-flopping like crazy. You know, he, after his trip in China, you know, he's kind of like, okay, we need to have an independent foreign policy. Why are we, you know, subverting our needs for the US? And we actually had no Cold War. We're coming out with a briefing on the fact that Europe has basically largely been subordinate in so many ways. Economically, the US has basically been pushing a deindustrialization in 
trying to attract, make certain um, European companies move their production sites to the US. We also see the subordination through the Ukraine war because the US has basically replaced the Russian supply and has now been able to have an, a monopoly to the point where they've been able to hike up the prices of the supply of um, various energy resources that ultimately are increasing the cost of living crisis amongst Europeans. I'm really hoping that the European people are going to see the light and try to, to wage the struggle because ultimately their governments are subordinating the needs and the interests of their people. And even, you know, you mentioned this thing of how can we exploit what seems to be a bit of a conflict within or a crisis within um, European and Western elites. And this is one of them is we're going to only see the situation worsen if they continue to subordinate their interests to basically the U.S.'s interests. But I have to say, again, the question of all these meetings that are happening, if they don't have any concrete proposals to address structural issues, we're not going to see any changes. Because if you look at the history of the triad, basically, which is uh, the US, Europe and Japan, essentially, after Japan and Germany were demolished in the Second World War, it was a centerpiece of US foreign policy to subordinate these countries to their interests. And it was at that time, there were so many um, US bases that were allowed to to be retained in that area, in Asia, in Japan, in South Korea. But Germany and Japan were told to demilitarize. And they essentially had to, you know, demilitarize and in the process, which is, we all wanted things to demilitarize, but not in the interest of allowing for a, a military monopoly, right? So this goes back decades, unfortunately, like since, since the formation of NATO in 1949, since I think it's 1951, the treaty, the US-Japan treaty, um, where all these other countries who are the kind of subordinates are the cowards in this moment that actually do need to play a more vital role in standing up to the US, even if it's not necessarily going to, I don't think that they're going to change their minds, even though the G7 meeting showed a little bit of internal conflict, they're still too subordinated. But I think that the there are elements of the European left, like um, Delinka, like uh, PTB, the Belgian Workers' Party, who are trying to raise the alarms even though unless the people, I think only when the people really feel the cost of living crisis, perhaps there's an opportunity. But what China is offering up that I think people will start to pay greater attention for in, in the West Western world is the fact that there are these regional projects and regional vehicles like bricks, etc., that are starting to grow a little bit in strength and in autonomy. And as we've seen in Africa, the opportunity to work with China has given us options has given us uh, a degree of, of of agency that we didn't previously have because we were subordinates to the economic domination of the West because of the neocolonial uh, situation that's happening in the global South. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought, I mean, a, a lot of the things you just set up. I would also add the uh, the TKP to your list, uh, along with the PTB and Dailinke, the Communist Party of Turkey, uh, also playing a critical role you know, in, uh, you know, in those conversations, so many places I want to go from what you just said, I'm trying to think about where to go next. Um, but I mean, one of the things that I, th- I think we have to address, right, is how the US is just it's so like, blatantly hypocritical when it says it has concern uh, for, you know, China putting a base or a training center or whatever in Cuba, or, you know, these 
balloons that it claimed or, you know, all of these things that are happening because, you know, we learned just a, a year or so ago, you know, speaking as we are just shortly after the death of Daniel Ellsberg, he, towards the end of his life, in fact, leaked additional information about how in 1958, the U.S. government seriously considered nuking China. And in fact, in Taiwan, in fact, in order to prevent Chinese attacks on Taiwan. And this was something that didn't actually get a lot of attention at the time. And I think there's you know a lot of interesting like reasons for that, but it was published in the New York Times. But they said that uh, you know, if the bombings, you know, didn't prevent them, they would have to strike deep into China as far north as Shanghai. Now, as far as we know, the Chinese government, the military, has never threatened the people of the United States, right? They have never said, we're going to nuke, you know, New York City or D.C., even though certainly the Cold Warriors in the U.S. would have loved us to think that. And of course, and they actually put a lot of effort into making us think that, that both the USSR and China would strike at the heart of like every bit of American life. But China has never threatened the average working person, you know, in in the U.S. It is trying to establish itself. But I wanted to also ask about Africa, and I'm glad you started talking about it because there was, you know, a report that I had found a little while ago. It was actually put out last year, U.S. strategy toward toward sub-Saharan Africa. And this is a document that uh, that the White House had put out about just about a year ago. But I was rereading it recently as we look at the developments that we're seeing now with the heightened tensions, not just towards uh, China, but also towards Russia. And the, the U.S. in it says, you know, the U.S. is wants to, quote, advance high standards, value driven and transparent investments, as well as address political and security crises. The People's Republic of China, by contrast, sees the region as an important arena to challenge the rules-based international order. There's that phrase again. I love that phrase. Advance its own narrow commercial and geopolitical interests, and so on and so forth. And it's just this, you know, phrase after phrase of China bad, U.S. good. But what is the reality right now of how relations between the Chinese government and, you know, in particular for this document, it's sub-Saharan Africa, but just in general, between many African nations, how are they impacting how Blinken and the rest of the U.S. establishment are seeing the rise of China right now? Yeah, so, I mean, first off, that specific document, um, as I mentioned, what was really interesting was that the South African foreign minister, when you know, was in discussions, she basically said, you know, I really, we really don't like it when people tell us uh, either or. And she talks about and has said publicly, like this bullying mentality. And um, I'm thinking about it also in relation to the the foreign minister of India recently also said, what is this NATO mentality that the U.S. tries to force on every situation? So I think right now, particularly since the war in Ukraine broke out, a lot of global South leaders aren't actually interested. There's a, there's a new mood that they're not interested in following, you know, the U.S.'s, what do you call it, blueprint, the U.S. blueprint on geopolitical relations. We saw in many of the, the U.N. resolutions, many African countries took a non-aligned position, basically not uh, voting in many of the resolutions, which is a, a political position of non-alignment. We saw when it came to the question of sanctions against Russia, many African countries also abstained and or, or uh, with their tree voting against. Uh, but I think there's this mood for non-alignment for a couple of reasons. One is materially, as I mentioned, 
Africa and China now have a huge relationship. You know, we have, it's the biggest trade, bilateral trade partner. Um, we've seen a lot of infrastructural projects in the last couple of decades rise up that materially change Africa's ability to, to pursue a sovereign development agenda. And that has enabled, I think, African leaders to actually make a choice. So before we didn't have the potential to make a choice because we only had one choice. It was, you know, US and European money or nothing, um, US and European foreign policy or nothing. And now China's offered with its rise and its you know, economic and political opportunities has offered us options where we can maneuver a little bit and leverage that to make more independent positions. So right now, the mood in the continent from what I'm gathering, and we can see this also with, uh, you know, South Africa was told that we'll face sanctions if Putin comes for the BRICS meeting. And we've seen the South African foreign ministry basically say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but no, um, which again raises another contradiction for a lot of our activists in Africa is whilst we have to live in this kind of double consciousness of whilst it's really important for the global South to say no to imperialism, because that's the primary enemy of our time. It is a challenge when, you know, your governments don't necessarily serve the needs of the people in the day to day. So it is a little bit of a, you know, a mental double step you always have to make. But we do have to see the bigger picture that if we can make a blow to imperialism, U.S. imperialism, that provides greater opportunities for us to pursue more sovereign development that actually could serve people in the long term. It's, a, it's going to be a long wait or a, no, we're not going to wait. We're going to be doing stuff in the meantime, but it, it does pose that kind of challenge. But right now, trade relationships, I think it's like in 2021, it was like 254 billion up 35% year on year. We're seeing significant jumps there are issues around the balance, the, the trade volume in the sense that we still import more from China than we export out. But a lot of different things have been happening, such as I think it's like 98% of taxable products from the least developed countries have been waived and various processes and memorandums of understanding have been signed that have been helping to ensure that. But it also is up to us on the African side, because one thing that really bothered me when I was at the forum on China-Africa cooperation in 2021 in Senegal was that there was this lackluster positioning from the African side. It very much felt like China brings some things, puts some things on the table, and there's no collective bargaining within the African Union, within the African um, countries to really think about how are we going to use this to create strategic developments. And this is going back to this year is the anniversary of the formation of the um, Organization for African Unity in 1963, which is known as the African Union now. But when Kwame Nkrumah was making his like midnight speech on the eve of the inauguration when um, not all African countries were yet liberated. I think it was 22 countries at the time were um, liberated uh, or, you know, flag independence, not necessarily economic independence. In that moment, he was calling for, we need to have a continental plan, people. If we don't create a continental plan where we strategically organize our economy on a continental scale to say, okay, so-and-so has bauxite, so-and-so has shipping lanes, so-and-so has this, then we can't actually coordinate efforts that are going to bring our resources in the service of not only the continent, but its people. So right now, I think that the issue in Africa is that 
African leaders, though we have like Agenda 2063 and the, the, a couple of years ago, they launched the Africa free trade zones. It still is yet to be seen what kind of political will will be behind efforts to coordinate uh, foreign policy opportunities and trade opportunities with the likes of China. That's such an important point, Mika. I think there's there's so much to get into there. I just don't even know where to begin. I feel that to me, it's important to draw out all of the complexity and all the contradictions uh, of the situation, because I feel that, of course, the way it's being talked about in the mainstream media in the US is absolutely flattened on every single level. China is just evil, and it's taking advantage of Africa. And that's the end of that. It's imperialism. And that's horrible. And that's bad. But it's a lot more complicated about what bilateral development can look like and what it can look like to have these kinds of relationships bloom and develop between China and, of course, the the countries on the African continent. But one of the things I wanted to say as we move here uh, to get to our close is just that, you know, you said something that really that that really got me thinking, Mika, just in terms of Europe, but also kind of the complexity of the relationships that you're describing within the African continent about the way that that the overarching global political situation is shifting. I mean, the overall arching global political situation where we had a unipolar world where the entirety of the West in Europe gets behind America and does whatever the U.S. wants that we're seeing the fractures start to really begin as that shift is happening. If, if Europe is, if we see the Swiss company, for example, in terms of microchips partnering with a Chinese company, these are, these are open up a lot of questions and a lot of, of different kind of relationships that we can see develop in the next few years, which is incredibly also unstable. I think that's the other part of what comes with a more multinational kind of direction of things when it comes to, or multilateral kind of direction of things, we start to see that when we're thinking about Europe in particular, I don't think the rest of the world quite so much, but Europe in particular, if seeing a break with the United States would also mean inter-imperialist fighting. It would mean the capitalist countries going against each other. And this is a very dangerous situation. It's not going to be simple or easy. I mean, people think that the multipolar world is going to just magically emerge and everything is going to be peaceful and wonderful and great, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And the multipolar world brings with it uh, both the possibility of of, uh, a certain type of liberation for the global south, but it also brings with it, I think, this possibility uh, of the inter-imperialist war between Europe and the United States. And I think some of these cracks are starting to emerge, and I'm interested, especially with France, which you brought up here, with, with France in particular, to see exactly how that goes but also the the other possibilities on the other side of, of the development of the global south and what we can see if the world moves to a more multipolar world, what that could mean. So I'm, I'm curious kind of your thoughts, Mika, just uh, here at the end of the overarching look at the changing global political situation and the role that China plays within it. Oh, that's a toughie. <laughs> I mean, I will say that things are shifting at a faster speed, I think, than we could have anticipated like a year ago, two years ago. You know, in the last few months alone, we're seeing a lot more opening up in terms of even China's traditional ways of engagement are slightly shifting. And we're seeing, you know, a push for more peoples to people interactions in Africa, um, not just the kind of state level visits. There. And we're also seeing debate. And I think this is an important part is we haven't been good in us leftists in the global south and outside of china have not been good in engaging 
with the debates in China, with the various policy debates internally. And one of the projects that we launched this year in partnership with the Beijing Cultural Review is called a journal, a quarterly journal called Wenhua Zongheng, which is basically just giving a, the English, Portuguese and Spanish translation of some of the key texts that are coming in the Beijing Cultural Review. And why I say this is because we also treat China as a monolith when in fact there's so much dynamic, um, you know, things happening in China, dynamic thinking. And in the or the first issue of the journal, it was really interesting to read the debates happening in China and how they view themselves in relation to the rest of the world. And the sense of like, we also have been trapped in a Western epistemology that just disallows us to just imagine a totally different reorganization of society, a society that as uh, you were saying, Chris, that, you know, doesn't, has historically, one of the essays talks about the civilizational state of China and like, how do you understand China today if you don't understand that it's been in existence and has cultures over thousands of years? China, when it became a state in the modern sense, it always was trying to work within the state and try to address the domestic issues. And it was always being defensive. It only had a small moment in time, like with uh, the, there's an Admiral Zheng He who kind of went in Asia and and in the end of the 1400s, I think it was um, just before I think he came to Africa before the so-called explorers, a.k.a. the colonizers, Vasco da Gama, etc., came to Africa. But it was only for a short brief period of time that they really ventured out. But otherwise, China's been always on the defensive, has never tried to, you know, impose itself on the rest of the world. And they have this concept called Tianxia, which is basically like, how do we develop our society with people who want to be part of it? Like that it should be voluntary. It should be based on uh, consensus. It should be based on mutual benefit. Whilst we know in the case of the US, its whole epistemology is based on coercion, is based on violence, is based on supremacy of an elite over the majority. And so I think that what's shifting is people are paying greater attention to actually what China is, not a refracted version coming through a Western lens, but wanting to pay more attention, visiting China, China visiting the rest of the world. And I think that allows a lot of opportunities because I will say I was I was in China recently for a couple of months and there's just nothing like seeing how a society of 1.4 billion people is organized on such a big scale. You go to the train station. I went on a high-speed railway um, from Beijing to Shanghai. It has, you know, 17, 18, uh, what do you call them? The carriages with a thousand people running on time every day, getting people within four and a half hours. What should be a 12-hour trip on average is four and a half hours. And so to think about that level of organization and how they've managed to do so is should be of extreme interest it blew my mind that no one was paying attention to the fact that in 2020 they eradicated extreme poverty like the whole of africa should have been like whoa we want to know what's happening not so we can mimic and like force a carbon copy on our situation but to understand some of the dynamic ways that china has been trying to address these long standing issues that came from you know the century of humiliation of western imperialism european imperialism destroying the country and destroying um, a lot of the potential for upliftment of the people. So that's, I don't know, really, I can't read the future necessarily and predict what will happen. But I think that 
the only way that we in the left, in the global south, are going to have a fighting chance to save our planet, um, address the needs of our people, is if we also take seriously and not do so from a Western, you know, through the Western media, but independently of those things, investigate and understand the facts for what they are and understand the contradictions and mistakes because China's also made mistakes. But what I think is so dynamic about the country is when they do make mistakes, they have a serious conversation about it and they try to figure out a solution. It might not always work, but they, they are willing to change when things aren't working. Whilst the US is stuck in this like, oh my gosh, it's almost like being in the Dante's Inferno. You just feel like... You're there's more of the same and no, none of that dynamism that we see in in these other alternative projects. I mean, imagine democracy on some level. I mean, listening to the way people think about things is something that is so foreign to us here. It's hard to even put that into words. <laughs> My God. Certainly, certainly. Just, you know, thinking about having a democracy on just a giant scale, having just a society on, on, on such a giant scale. You know, and certainly there are contradictions everywhere in every society, in every world, but being able to address them and and having the will in place, in fact, to to address them. It just is something that I think we in the West do not understand and have a hard time understanding because we're told that we can't do those things here, that it's not possible. And we're told, of course, that it actually isn't like that in China uh, because, of, you know, with all of the propaganda. But that's part of why we're here to help you know, blow away the propaganda that the West, you know, throws throws at us about China, about Cuba, about, you know, all of the so-called enemies of our shared enemy, U.S. capitalism and imperialism. And so we need to, you know, really pay attention to these contradictions. We need to pay attention to the voices that are coming. Tell us, Mika, where can people find the journal you were talking about? Oh, you can find um, Wen Hua Zonghe on the tricontinental.org, where uh, it's a partnership between Tricontinental and Dongsheng. You can also find it on dongshengnews.org. Follow us on Twitter. The next edition will be coming out in, I think, 27th of June, and it will be on Chinese modernization, essentially, looking at the question of poverty alleviation, uh, which is part of the thing that has really been a, like of huge interest to me and should be of huge interest to the rest of the global South. Again, not to mimic... But to know that it's possible when, as you said, Chris, is political will to change the situation, because you don't see that in the, the rest of the world, a will to want to change and transform society. Well, I'll be looking out for that on the 27th. I hope our listeners do as well. Volume one was really, really enlightening and interesting. And maybe we'll have you back at some point to, to talk about that. But for right now, I think we will just leave it at this, that it is the U.S., it is Anthony Blinken, and it is whoever ends up in his place after him and everyone who was before him that are actually fomenting war with China. Uh, and that is who we need to be paying attention to and calling out as people who are in the U.S. We're going to have to leave it right there, though. We have been joined by Mika Nahando Ereskog, a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and one of the hosts of the Crane and Africa China podcast by the Dongsheng Collective. Thanks so much, Mika. Thank you. Well, we do have to leave it right there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today and you want to support independent journalism, go to patreon.com slash covert action magazine, become a patron. We can only do this show with the support of our listeners. So if you want to hear more, be sure to go to our Patreon to support. You've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin with Chris Garaffa. 
And Rachel Who, Covert Action Bulletin is the official show of Covert Action Magazine and is brought to you by way of WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. If you miss any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you can find podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin or listen on your station's archives. So we're out of time for today. Thanks for listening to Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action. <laughs>